Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. In segment three, we're going to catch up with our old friend, Marshall Glickman, he's the CEO of G2 Strategic for our Glickman Global segment, where we look at a sports business topic on a global scale. We're going to preview two big upcoming events across the pond, the British Open and Wimbledon, both taking place in the near future. That's in segment three with Marshall Glickman. In segment four, Sports Sense, we're going to catch up with Jim Bruner. He is with the Seattle Times. He's been in the courtroom all week long covering the trial between the city of Seattle and the Sonics that will determine the fate of pro basketball in the Emerald City. Lots going on there. We'll catch up with Jim Bruner. That's in segment four. A couple of other notes. Visit my sports business blogger. Download the SBR podcast on demand. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, we're in the sports industry. We're jaded. There's not many times we get excited to watch an event. But last weekend's U.S. Open and Tiger Woods' performance, I have a feeling 10, 20, 25 years from now, people will still be talking about his performance. And then we find out on Wednesday that he basically did it on one leg. He has to shut it down for the rest of the season. Really, words cannot describe what we saw last weekend on the golf course. No, they can't. And, you know, we talk all the time about maybe Michael Jordan when he had the flu back in the playoffs in the 90s. And, you know, what really solidified it for me is when I was at work, I work at an ad agency and people that never watch sports were talking around the water cooler about Tiger's performance, not only on Sunday, but also Monday. These are not sports fans, but we're talking about how incredible it was and how captivated they were watching it on TV. And so for me, as a just as a legitimate sports fan, to hear that from not even a casual sports fan, that showed me how great this performance was. And there were huge numbers for ESPN, for NBC, and online viewers. We will give you those coming up next in our headline segment. And the Boston Celtics win their 17th World Championship. Terrific ratings for ABC. We will give you those numbers as well. And the New York Mets. They took an awkward way of firing their manager, Willie Randolph, this week. We will discuss that. That's all coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio Headlines coming up. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training. Sports business curriculum taught by industry experts and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center, passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, as we discussed in our open, Tiger Woods puts on quite possibly his finest performance of his career. He wins the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, his 14th major, putting him only four majors away from tying Jack Nicklaus's all-time record. The tournament was really must-see TV. It was as compelling as any sporting event that we've seen in quite some time. ESPN set a record for the most viewed golf telecast ever on cable with the broadcast of the Tiger Woods Rocco Mediate uh, U.S. Open playoff on Monday. The Nets' coverage from 12 to 2 drew a 4.2 and 4.8 million viewers. Nathan, for a Monday, when everyone's at work, when there was no promotion, because you obviously don't know that this is going into a playoff until late Sunday, that number is absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, as you were saying earlier, I went to a bar, a restaurant, just to kind of see, is anyone going to be watching this? Are they going to have it on the TV set? The bar was full. People took the lunch hour to come watch this. It was unlike anything I had seen. Well, and I was one of those people that went to the bar, but I started by watching online at work. You know, I started tracking the scores. And, you know, ESPN drew more than 5.1 million visits during the five-day tournaments and 36.7 million vi- page views. So that's up 256% and 282% from 02 or 07. And, you know, it's just incredible. I mean, that. The picture online was the best I've seen watching online. We've talked about the NCAA. We've talked about the Masters in the last couple years. But the picture online for the U.S. Open was unbelievable. It was real time, and it was gorgeous. It was like HD. Well, and the good news is, is for everyone who is going to be watching the Olympics online in August... Like you just said, it's getting easier and easier to watch. It's getting faster and faster. There's not the delay. It's easy to get in and watch. And a lot of people sat at their desks, as you said, and watched the U.S. Open, especially the playoff on Monday online. So, you know, we are now entering the age where you're going to see almost as many people, if not more, watching online at their computer while they're at work, especially if it's a weekday, then you'll find watching on regular TV. Now, how about Tiger Woods? I mean, let me just be a golf fan for a minute. I mean, the guy was amazing on Saturday. He makes he makes an eagle on 18. On Sunday, he makes a birdie to get himself into a playoff. He makes a birdie on 18 in the playoff to get it to the 91st hole. How many big putts did this guy drain? And this, I think, Nathan, is why the casual fan, the person watching in a restaurant, the person just kind of catching this out of the corner of their eye and then being pulled into it was so engaged by what Tiger Woods did. Well, let's talk about the advertisement Nike did. How appropriate was that advertisement right now for this tournament? The timing couldn't have been any better about Tiger's mental toughness. I think he showed that to everyone, the world, and that ad was running this entire tournament. He was so mentally tough. I think there's no one else in the world in any sport that is as mentally tough as Tiger Woods is. And you just knew watching it the whole time that he was going to win the tournament. I mean, even down to the wire, I felt like this guy is so tough, he's going to win it. Well, in Nike Golf and Wyden and Kennedy, credit them. First of all, there's voiceover on the ad from Earl Woods, Tiger's late father. It's Father's Day when they're running it. They ran it on Monday as well. It's on our blog at sportsbusinessradio.com if you haven't seen the ad. It's a fantastic ad. But, again, Nike and Wyden and Kennedy, 
they're as timely as any company out there when it comes to getting an ad done quickly or putting it in the appropriate spot. Now, we talk about Tiger's mental toughness, but let's talk about his physical toughness for a minute. That's headline number two. Tiger Woods announced on Wednesday that he will undergo reconstructive ACL surgery on his left knee. He's going to miss the remainder of the season. Woods has a double stress fracture in his left leg. Uh, The surgery date has not been set. He's played in six events this season, returning from an eight-week break after the Masters. Obviously, he won the U.S. Open. He's going to miss Ryder Cup. He's going to miss British Open. He's going to miss PGA Championship, where he's the defending champ. There's so many different layers of this. Let's just start with this. First of all, this is going to be terrible for the PGA. Their ratings on TV are going to go down because there's the Tiger effect. When Tiger's not playing in golf tournaments, people aren't nearly as apt to watch. There's sponsors that are paid big, big dollars to be associated with golf tournaments. Now Tiger's not going to be playing in these events. He's hosting the AT&T National coming up in a few weeks. That's in D.C. That benefits his charity. There's also the Chevron World Challenge in December. That also benefits his charity. He won't be able to play in either one of these. So the other thing is you've got Nike Golf, you've got Gatorade, you've got Tag Heuer, you've got all these companies that have invested millions of dollars in Tiger. Now Tiger's not going to be nearly as visible the rest of the year because he's not going to be playing in tournaments. So, I mean, I wrote about this on my blog, sportsbusinessradio.com, but there's so many different layers. There's not an athlete on the planet who, A, makes as much money in endorsements as Tiger, but there's also no one that means more to their sport than Tiger Woods. I mean, we always talk about Wayne Gretzky, what he meant to the NHL, and after Wayne left, how long it took the NHL, really, till recently with Sidney Crosby to kind of have a rebirth. It's the same thing with Tiger Woods. You take him away, now you're left with Phil Mickelson, Adam Scott, Vijay Singh, and, and really people who aren't nearly as compelling as Tiger Woods. Well, I don't disagree with you, Brian, but what's, what's incredible about Tiger Woods is the fact that when you think of Tiger Woods, what is the first thing that pops in your mind when you're trying to visualize him? You think red shirt, Nike swoosh. And so regardless of whether or not he plays the rest of the season, you're going to picture him in your mind mentally as wearing that red shirt with the Nike swoosh on. What I thought was incredible is if you watch Tiger throughout the tournament, he had no watch on his wrist. He put the watch on when he held the trophy at the Tag Heuer watch, and so they got the exposure. But what? Well, and how many times did he go to his Gatorade Tiger bottle? I uh, mean, so, so many, many times. So many times, but that's what makes it so incredible is Tiger's one of the few athletes, when I picture him, I picture him with all those brands. I picture him with the Nike swoosh. I picture him with the Gatorade bottle. And more recently, I picture him with the watch on. So even if he's not playing the tournaments, when I'm visualizing Tiger Woods, That's what he's wearing, and that's what makes it incredible as far as a marketing standpoint. Well, here's one other thing. Someone's got to step up and win these tournaments that Tiger's not going to play in now. Phil Mickelson, the number two in the world, is second in FedEx Cup points. Let me put this into perspective. Last year was the first year of the FedEx Cup. It's a points chase, kind of like NASCAR. It's the last last quarter of the season. Whoever has the most points gets a $10 million bonus. Tiger got $10 million last year. Phil Mickelson is second in the standings right now. Jack Nicklaus, we had him on a few weeks ago. In his entire career, Jack Nicklaus won 113 tournaments. He won $6 million. Someone is going to get a $10 million bonus this year and make more than Jack Nicklaus made in his career. I want to talk very quickly about Rocco Mediate. Here's a guy, 45 years old, could have been the oldest Open champion ever, He went 91 holes with Tiger, and some people think this was Tiger's best performance ever. 
Tip your hat to Rocco Mediate, who hung in there for 91 holes at 45 years of age and put on the performance of his life. He's going to pick up some endorsers. He's already had his phone ringing this week with people wanting to work with him. He's had a great personality. He was on David Letterman. Uh, you know, lots of good things going on with uh, Rocco Mediate. Our next headline, and any other week, this is the number one headline, but not this week. The Boston Celtics won their 17th NBA championship on Tuesday night. In Game 6, they downed the Lakers by a score of 131-92. to Largest blowout ever in a clinching game. The game earned a 34.5 rating in Boston, a 25.9 in L.A. It also helped ABC unseat Fox, which had won the 18-49 to demo for 22 straight weeks in the ratings. Now, here's some history, Nathan. Um, the Celtics-Lakers... Pulled an average of a 9.3 over the six-game series. Game 6 had a 10.7 rating. It beat the 2005 Heat-Mavs Game 6 by 7%. But to put this all in perspective, when the NBA was in its heyday when Michael Jordan was playing, the Bulls and Jazz back in 1998, their average number, not their best number, their average number was an 18.7, nearly double the audience of the Lakers and Celtics this year, Lakers Detroit back in 2004, they got an 11.5. That got better than this. But the good news for ABC is last year, the Spurs Cavs, 6.3 lowest rated ever. It got a better rating than that. Well, we just talked about Tiger Woods. It just goes to show you how important it is to have superstars in the mix at these events. Tiger Woods, obviously Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan in his heyday. That's how important it is to have these recognizable athletes to the casual fan. It helps with ratings and it helps with viewership. And that is why you absolutely have to have these players in the finals or else you get no one watching the games. Now, an interesting endorser moment at the end if you watch michelle tafoya from abc interview kevin garnett he was hysterical and he was saying anything is possible anything is possible kevin garnett is an adidas endorsee their slogan is impossible is nothing did he screw up their slogan or was he just saying anything is possible as soon as he started saying this the first thing that came to my mind is oh god he's trying to reiterate his sponsor's slogan but he's saying the wrong slogan. Guess whose slogan anything is possible is? Who? Li Ning, the competitor in China. So he's he's saying someone else's slogan. Kevin Garnett, if you were trying to do something good for your endorser Adidas, you really screwed it up. All right, that's it for headlines. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to catch up with Marshall Glickman for our Glickman Global segment. We're going to talk about the British Open and Wimbledon. Two big events coming up across the pond. That's coming up next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000. The year before you bought the Mavericks, they were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday <laughs> or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. For an international outlook on the world of sports business, Sports Business Radio presents Glickman Global. And we are joined by our old friend Marshall Glickman, the CEO of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, welcome. Hey, Brian. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. So you're a tennis guy. You work a lot with tennis people. French Open recently completed. Uh, Nadal just mowed through the field, really mowed through Roger Federer. Uh, and then Anna Ivanovich, now the number one ranked player in the world. This is an attractive young lady. She's going to have a lot of endorsement opportunities. Give me your quick thoughts on the French Open. Uh, three things. Nadal, uh, incredible athlete. Uh, but too predictable, meaning his domination on clay is so clear and so obvious and so predictable, I think that sort of takes something away from the intrigue and the greatness of Roland Garros, frankly. I would agree with you. You know, Anna Ivanovich is one of the most, you know, frankly beautiful women in the world, coupled with the fact that she is now the best female tennis player in the world. That's a pretty good combination right there. When you're a marketing guy like me, uh, that's a great uh, combination. Interesting story, you know, the underlying story about her is, you know, she was groomed for this. I mean, this story started when she was about 12 years old, and so... Kind of like Sharapova, if I must say. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's sort of a double-edged, good news, bad news sort of thing. I mean, they take these people's lives away from them. They never have childhoods. They never have social relationships the way normal kids do. And basically they're being, you know, groomed into uh, getting the result that, in fact, they've gotten. So that would be an interesting sort of topic for us to discuss actually sometime, Brian, at a, at a later show, because especially in Europe and especially even more so in Eastern Europe or where uh, On is from, which is Serbia, you know, you, you, you get that kind of system at play. And it's, it's really interesting how they raise their athletes quite differently than we do here in the States. And then the third thing about the French Open is in America, big yawn, nobody knew it was on. Um, I they are a client of mine, the French Tennis Federation, so I'm pretty close to the people there, and I know the people that are in executive positions, and they took the money from the Tennis Channel, and as a result, the only tennis uh, that was on live, you know, was on at six o'clock in the morning on NBC when we got to the final weekend, and that was it. Uh, the rest of it was on the Tennis Channel, and most people just don't have access. You know, it's interesting. You talk about taking the money. I look back at the NHL. You know, they had the ESPN versus versus debate. They took the money from versus. They really disappeared for a long time. They're just now rebounding with ratings. So that's an interesting point that you bring up. Albeit, Brian, versus and is, is, is the distribution of versus. I don't know the actual statistics, but I would bet you it's five times 
the tennis channel maybe 10 times. Sure, but it just is the example of an entity, a league, a sport, taking the money over the the distribution coverage, and sometimes that's a mistake, as we've seen. Marshall, two— I agree, Brian. I agree with that totally, what you just said. Okay. Um, Two big events coming up. Uh, The British Open, that's at Royal Birkdale— the last time it was played there, 1998, Marco Mira won it, if you're paying attention, July 17th to the 20th. And then Wimbledon is coming up June 23rd to July 6th. Obviously, the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club in London. Let's talk about the British Open first. Tiger Woods, as we see, goes down this week. He wins the U.S. Open. He's out for the year. Talk to me about Tiger and the impact that it's going to have. Do people in England, are they really going to miss Tiger that much? We know in the States he's going to be missed, but over in Europe, in, in England, are they going to care about his absence? There's a point in time in the future when Tiger Woods is going to retire. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it may be a long time from now. It may be decades from now. Uh, I love golf. I love what Tiger's done for the sport. He's perhaps the most amazing athlete athlete in the history of professional sports. I mean, he's certainly right up there. Um, But with that said, um, they've grown too dependent on Tiger. There's too much emphasis and too much focus on Tiger, the pairing they did with Mickelson last week. And, you know, and, and it really, I think, in the long run, I'm not sure that's good. So there is a blessing in disguise here in that it will perhaps give an opportunity for other great golfers worldwide and it's truly now you know an international game with international stars to get a little bit more exposure so that aspect from my perspective i think is good two there's going to be now for the next what is it how long is he out a year yeah january 2009 they say he's set to return so you know there's going to be all this chatter right what if tiger had played Well, yeah, all these guys who win, it's going to be an asterisk next to their name because, oh, if Tiger had played, you know, this guy wouldn't have won that tournament. I don't agree it's an asterisk. I don't think the fact that he's not there takes away from, you know, their performance particularly, although I I understand that perspective. I'm more – I think that chatter, sort of the water cooler chatter that's going to happen, you know, would it have been different if Tiger had been there isn't bad. I mean, I think that gets people talking talking about the game of golf and they're going to be talking about tiger but they're going to be talking about him in the context of other players and i don't think that's a bad thing and then as we get closer to his comeback the talk's all going to be about when is he coming back is he going to be the same guy you know and i think that doesn't you know it's not i don't think it's a bad thing but let me ask you this you've spent a lot of time over in europe at the british open are people is it going to be as big of an impact as it will be over here that Tiger's not playing in the British Open at the gates uh, with TV over there, is there going to be a, a big lack of interest because Tiger's not playing? No. Won't affect it at all. Not even one iota. So who are they coming out to see if they're not coming out to see Tiger? They're not coming out to see anybody. They're coming out to go to, um, you know, the event. They're coming out to go to the Open just like when they go to Wimbledon, they're coming out to go to the championship. So it's more of a social event than anything else is what you're well, saying. Well, yes, it's an event. You know, people would define their rationale or motivation for going differently. For some people, it is social. 
and it, it certainly has a lot to do with see and be seen. Uh, I've been to Wimbledon several times. I've never had the opportunity to be at the British Open, but I've been to Brit- Wimbledon as, as recently as last year. So clearly that it's about that. It's, it's sort of a must-see event in the same way that the U.S. Open in tennis is in New York, uniquely in New York. But in New York, when the U.S. Open happens, it takes over Manhattan and the whole, you know, the, the whole business elite, you know, for a couple of weeks. And people feel like it's something they have to do um, if they're somebody. And, and I will be honest, I, it's very elitist. It's not a Joe fan kind of an event. Now let's talk about Wimbledon for a minute. We're joined by Marshall Glickman, the CEO of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Wimbledon starts Monday, and Wimbledon is powered by ESPN. It is going to be on ESPN, and it is going to be on NBC. But just as you talked earlier, as the French Open was a little bit of a yawner because Nadal is so dominant on clay, he's won four in a row. Well, Roger Federer's won five in a row on grass. Is that also going to be a yawner? Are we going to say before the tournament even starts, I'll give another trophy to Federer? Um, To some extent, I think that's true, although there's more players that can compete at a high level on grass than there are on clay. Clay is a specialist game. And so there's it's, it, you can you can name you know less fewer than ten players maybe arguably fewer than five had any chance whatsoever to be in the semis and finals of Roland Garros. I think you've got a bigger number maybe it's twenty at Wimbledon who can compete on grass. Marshall, which would you rather watch, men's tennis or women's tennis? I'm going to argue I'd rather watch women's tennis just for the simple fact that the top two women in the world. Anna Ivanovich and Maria Sharapova, very attractive young ladies. I think they have longer rallies, and I don't know that the men's game is that exciting anymore. What's your thoughts on that? Well, my wife might be listening, so I can't say. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't think you like women's tennis because of the longer rallies, Brian. Well, I um, mean, it's more interesting to watch, frankly. It really yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I uh, When I first started working in tennis, I came into it with the exact same perspective you just stated. The reality of the situation is that men's tennis outdraws women's tennis in every way. Ratings, attendance, sponsorships, by about three to one. I will say this, though. If you remember back at the beginning of the year, the Australian Open, Ivanovich and Sharapova played, I believe it was in the finals, and it was one of the highest-rated tennis matches in years. When you put those two together, I think you're going to have some big ratings. Well, it's a fashion show. Right, and a beauty contest. And a beauty contest. Right. You know, that's what it is. It is what it is, and that's fine. Now, she, Ivanovich and Sharapova, are both incredible athletes. And I don't know that people understand through television. I've been to so many tennis tournaments the last two years where I've been in many hotels where the players are staying and sometimes where the women are staying. And, and my God, these women are six feet, six one, six two. The the muscles, the, the definition, the quality of athleticism is incredible, just incredible. Well, and, you know, these women are successful and they're winning. A lot of people knocked Anna Kornikova because she was beautiful, but she didn't really win anything. These two women are winning. Marshall, they're, winning. We, they're good. Yeah, we've got about 60 seconds left. Uh, tell us quickly what's going on with uh, G2 Strategic. 
Oh, I'm running around doing all kinds of funny things, trying to make a living. Uh, I'm going to be involved in the development of a new arena in Istanbul, Turkey, which is being built specifically for the 2010 World Championships of Basketball. My mission is to figure out how they can, you know, keep it busy when that's over. Uh, so that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I've been to Turkey before. It's an incredibly uh, exotic and wonderful country. Uh, I'm involved here in my hometown of Bend, Oregon, in an effort to bring a new arena to Central Oregon that would be anchored by a minor league hockey team, and that's taken up a lot of time, and it's fun. I've also sort of gotten my nose into the Mount Bachelor situation here. If anybody's followed that, that's a whole other story. And I'm looking at a jazz festival, and you know, it's it's fun. I you know, I I, I I'm having a lot of fun doing a lot of different things. You are a globe trotter and a trendsetter, and we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for this month's Glickman Global. We'll talk to you next month. Ryan, you're terrific. Talk Thank to you, you. you. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio. My guest is Jim Bruner. He's with the Seattle Times. He's covering the six-day non-jury trial to determine whether the Seattle Sonics must honor the final two years of their lease at Key Arena, the NBA's smallest venue. Sonics owner Clay Bennett is trying to move the team to Oklahoma City. The city of Seattle is asking U.S. District Judge Marsha Peckman to force the team to stay until the end of the 2009-2010 season. Jim, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Thank you. So you've been covering this trial. You've been in the courtroom pitting the city of Seattle against the Sonics this week. Generally, which side has had the most success stating their case this week, in your opinion? Well, I, I actually think that the Sonics attorneys have been, it's gone much smoother for them in terms of presenting their case. Seattle's attorneys have just had a more difficult time, have had more uh, objections, you know, rejected by the judge, have had some problems with their uh, expert witnesses being, uh, their, their credibility being attacked pretty easily. And um, so I would say that the Sonics attorneys are, are coming off a little better in, in the courtroom. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that for a moment. There's a story, uh, Andrew Zimbalist, he's a sports business expert. From what I read, boy, he was picked apart. I guess he was a witness for the city, and he was going to talk about economic impact, and the Sonics lawyers just tore him apart and basically said that he hijacked information from a report he did several years ago for Anaheim 
for this. Is that a correct story? Yeah, that's about right. It was pretty extraordinary. And this was, uh, I think it was Wednesday, or maybe it was Tuesday afternoon. And, um, you know, the big witness of the day was supposed to be Clay Bennett, the owner of the team, of course, finishing up his testimony. But the city uh, interrupted that to put on uh, Zimbalist because he had to get on a plane. It could only be there for a little bit. And um, so Zimbalist went on late in the afternoon. And I think the city's lawyers thought that they would just run through his testimony and it would go pretty smoothly. But the Sonics attorney, one of the Sonics attorneys, Paul Taylor, got up there and proceeded to just uh, tear this guy apart. And now Andrew Zimbalist is one of the top, you know, really well-known sports economists in the country. Sure. He's written 10 books. He, uh, I think, is probably best known for um, kind of ripping up the economic impact statements or studies that go along with a lot of sports stadiums, saying that they are really overstate the impact of those. But in this case, the city hired him to try to prove that, that sp- the Sonics presence in Seattle has uh, vast uh, intangible benefits that, that can't actually be measured. And that's part of the city's case that, that Clay Bennett shouldn't be able to just pay a, a monetary payment to escape the key arena lease because there are these other benefits that can't be calculated. Uh, but like you said, then you know his credibility was assaulted. There was a report he'd done in Anaheim a few years back. I think he was representing the city when the the team changed its name to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. There was a dispute over that, and the Sonics lawyer pointed out that that this uh, that Zimbalist had taken paragraphs from that and just you know in some cases just changed Anaheim to Seattle, and in other cases just lifted the whole thing. Um, to be fair. I think that some of those paragraphs were just background economics. So it's not like, uh, you know, he needed to rewrite every word of of an economic theory, for example, that hadn't changed. But the the bottom line is he didn't look good on the stand at all. Yeah, and I guess he was paid $18,000 or close to it for his appearance. So, uh, ouch. Give us some background on Marsha Peckman. I mean, again, this is a a jury. This is a non-jury trial. The judge is going to decide this. How does she ordinarily rule? I mean, is there a way you can look at her and go, well, you know, you can kind of predict what the outcome of this might be? Well, I think it's dangerous to try to get inside a judge's head. Right. (laughs) Even more so than trying to predict a jury. But um, I wrote a profile of her for the Sunday newspaper this last week, and, you know, what people told me is, number one, she's not at all a professional sports fan. Um, An attorney who knows her really well, is really good friends with her, told a story that, uh, several years after Ken Griffey Jr. started playing for the Mariners and, you know, everybody was talking about the kid, as they called him. Um, she finally said one day at a party, you know, who is this Griffey guy? And oh, jeez. Yeah, and everybody said they thought she was joking. And, um, you know, they thought it was charming. I mean, she's a very, uh, you know, intellectual person who reads a lot of books and is just not interested in professional sports, like, like there's quite a few people who aren't. So, you know, in that sense, the Sonics should be happy that um, <clears throat> she was picked to preside over this trial because, you know, there's going to be no hometown sort of Homer instinct in her. Um, and she's very, the other thing she's known for is just being a very strict about courtroom rules. And she has this trial on a strict timeline. Each side gets 15 hours of trial time. She's keeping track of it. She likes things to go smoothly. And the city's lawyers have run into problems because at times they've been disorganized. They haven't had exhibits ready, you know, in her notebook when they're referring to them, to them, um, she, they have at times made <laughs> weird objections. I guess that she has kind of looked at them cross-eyed, at, at, you know, and said, uh, "What are you trying to, to do?" 
So, you know, not a sports fan, a stickler for process. That's that's the main things you could say about her. Also, very regarded as very smart and, um, you know, not somebody who's going to take this decision lightly. We're joined by Jim Bruner. He's with the Seattle Times. He's been inside the trial between the city of Seattle and the Sonics this week. Uh, Jim, Clay Bennett, the owner of the Sonics, the main owner, took the stand this week. You know, there's been so much written about these emails that have gone back and forth and were his intentions sincere to keep the team in Washington? How did he perform under pressure when he was on the witness stand? I think he actually performed pretty well just in terms of his demeanor. I mean, in a way, I was thinking about it, um, he's already taken all the punches. I mean, you know, the media, you know, we've all covered all the emails already. They came out in the city's lawsuit pretty early, so it's not like the city was able to show him something new and um, – and, and surprise him with something that he hadn't had time to prepare his response to. So just in terms of demeanor, he was he was fine. He didn't try to dance around too much. Um, you know, didn't try to to dodge questions too much. Um, now that being said, some of the content of those emails is just still really hard for a lot of people to accept his explanation when his his partners are clearly talking about um, you know moving the team to Oklahoma City and emails to him. And then he's responding, I'm a man possessed. That's his famous email. Um, and then he tries to say he was talking about Seattle, even though they were talking about Oklahoma City. It, it, that part is just still difficult to, uh, you know, for a lot of people to think that he's credible in Seattle. Um, I don't know what the judge will think of that. And the other, the other thing that's interesting is that it's possible that, that his, his intentions might not have a lot to do with this case. This case is about a lease and whether it can be enforced. 23 of 125 Sonics employees have quit in the last six months. It's no secret that fan and sponsor support is going to dwindle if the Sonics are forced to stay in Seattle over the next two years as a lame duck team. Bennett says the Sonics could lose $60 million if they're forced to play out their lease at Key Arena. Do you see any scenario? We, I had a guy from Save Our Sonics on several months ago. Do you see any scenario where Bennett would grow impatient and sell the team if he's forced to stay in Seattle for the remainder of this lease? That's really hard to predict. I think that it's possible that if he were able to sell the team to a local ownership group, a guy like Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer has been interested, of course, um, <clears throat> and he could get a deal with the NBA to to get another franchise for Oklahoma City. You know, simultaneously, maybe you know a three-city deal could be worked out. But absent that, uh, you know, there are only 30 NBA teams, and he has one. And I don't think he's going to willingly get rid of it. And, and as he testified in depositions and in court, you know, he loses $60 million. His partners lose $60 million over the next two years. Uh, they have enough money to handle it. It's not pleasant, but it, it, these guys are, in some cases, billionaires. They're, they're not going to, um, you know, it's not going to affect their lifestyle. Now, I was reading that someone testified that uh, if the Sonics do leave for Oklahoma City, that 1,200 to 1,300 jobs are going to go away, that it's nearly $188 million in local economic activity. Would you say those numbers are, are pretty accurate, or uh, do you have any doubts about those numbers? I actually do have a doubts about those numbers, and the ironic thing in this case is that you have a sports team that's arguing exactly the opposite of what sports teams usually want the public to believe. Um, they usually trot out economic impact statements that say, you know, we're worth uh, – you know, that amount of money, $188 million or, or something. In fact, the, in Oklahoma City, the Sonics have a, it had an economic study that said that they're worth 
I think it was $170 million a year to the state, I believe it was to the state of Oklahoma, and they used that to get some tax uh, incentives to go down there. And um, meanwhile, their expert up here that they brought up today, um, Brad Humphreys, uh, is arguing in, in court that, that the Sonics' departure from Seattle would have no impact. Hmm. In fact, he actually argues that he, cities that have sports teams are worse off. That's ridiculous. Uh, are potentially worse off economically. I mean, yeah, it seems kind of odd, but he... You know, that's the weird, bizarro world that we're in in this court case. You have this Sonic saying, nobody likes us, nobody cares about us, and um, we make no difference to the economy. And now you have the city, conversely. They're the ones who had the expert who said the Sonics contribute $188 million to the economy. You have the city who's been, you know, unwilling or unable to get an arena deal done for the Sonics, arguing that, um, you know, the world would end if they leave. I'm exaggerating a little, but that's the that's kind of the role reversal that's happened. Jim, two quick questions before I let you go. How has NBA Commissioner David Stern been able to avoid the witness stand in this trial? Well, there was a ruling a while back that, that I think we wrote about in New York. The city tried to subpoena him, if my memory is correct, and instead the, uh, the judge out there in New York, federal judge in New York, said, no, you can subpoena Joel Litvin, who's his number two guy, and uh, take his deposition. And then if you don't get what you need from that, you can come back and argue that you also, you need to get David Stern. But um, the federal judge just ruled that the city didn't have that right, and Joel Litvin is not testifying here either. So they just, other than through the deposition. Interesting. I think that's interesting how the NBA has avoided having to to be a part of this uh, this process and this trial. Last question for you. How do you see this shaking out? I mean, I know you know it's hard to predict, but you've been in the courtroom this week. If you could look into your crystal ball, if you had to weigh in one way or the other, how do you see this shaking out? You know, right now, while I've said I, I think that the city's case has been a little rockier, uh, it's really hard for me to predict how it'll come out. And what makes it even harder is even if the Sonics win and the judge says, okay, you can buy out your key arena lease, then there, there may be a whole phase two of this, which is how much money do, you, do they have to pay? And that might even require a separate, you know, probably shorter, but some kind of jury trial where that would be determined. And then you have to remember that former owner Howard Schultz has his own federal lawsuit. The same judge is uh, presiding over that. So um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, with the NBA season kind of getting closer and closer, whether the Sonics will really be able to, to get to Oklahoma City for this coming NBA season or not. Yeah, it sounds like if there's enough litigation, uh, maybe they will get past the point of no return. They'll have to stay in Seattle, at least for this season. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for taking time to join us. Jim Bruner, the Seattle Times, great work by him. Uh, Check him out, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. 
Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. This is Sports Business Radio. Back with our final segment on this edition of Sports Business Radio and our good friend Darren Ravel from CNBC. He's their sports business reporter. He had an interesting breakdown of how much Tiger Woods made for his efforts at the U.S. Open. Nathan, what were the numbers? Well, just a couple holes of golf, and I'd be, uh, I'd be making more than I am right now. Per round, Tiger made $270,000 per hole. He makes 14835 and for a couple strokes, he makes $3,770. So not bad money, and that's not counting endorsements. Yeah, I mean, that's just his prize money. If you factor in what Nike Golf is paying him to wear the swoosh, what Gatorade is paying him to sip the Gatorade Tiger, Tag Heuer is paying him to wear their watches, it, those numbers go up even more. We've got a lot of thank yous for this week's show. Uh, Marshall Glickman from G2 Strategic. He joined us and talked about the British Open and Wimbledon. Jim Bruner. We will also have lots more news on the Sonics trial and how this all shakes out. We talked to him about that. He's been in the courtroom all week. Our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger. Our sponsors, of course, Morton's The Steakhouse, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, ProTrade.com and Evergreen Media Training. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand. We are moving up the iTunes charts via podcast every week. Just go to SportsBusinessRadio.com. You can also go to iTunes, click on the podcast page. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week. Enjoy the weather wherever you are. It's nice and sunny here in Portland finally. And we'll talk NBA Draft on next week's edition of Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.